Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 267 of Forgotten Classics, A Tall Tale Told in a Tavern, one of our on-again, off-again series. I just want to let you know that we're lucky to hear this at all. I feel like I have been slogging through molasses to get this thing done and put together, and as I was getting ready to put the finishing touches on it this weekend, uh, the introduction <laughs> for one thing, we had a freak windstorm on Thursday afternoon that had winds between 70 to 100 miles an hour, and there were 300,000 people who were out of power in the Dallas Metroplex, and they got half of them back on within two hours, so that's super. We were not that lucky. It was later on Saturday when we had our power on, and it isn't as if we were suffering. Having grown up in the country, I understand what it means to really have a power outage because there your water is often in a well and pulled up into the house through an electric pump. And so when you have no power, you have no water, you have no toilet flushing, and it's very inconvenient. So I felt super lucky because we had water, we had a gas water heater, so we had hot water, we have a gas stove so I could use matches and get it going, and last but not least, it was so weirdly spotty that a couple of blocks from us on a main street, it was fine, so we could go out and grab dinner. It wasn't as if we were all hunkered down in our houses eating peanut butter and crackers, wondering when anyone was going to get open again. However, it really puts a crimp in your podcast recording and editing when you don't have any power. That's really required. Then, today, I finally get a chance to sit down and I'm like, I'm doing the introduction, going to finish editing this because I've proofed the MP3, and I make one little wrong flick of the mouse, which I have never done before. I don't know why I even did that, but the entire file was ruined. It was gone. It was vanished. And I did everything to bring it back. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to reread this whole thing. It's going to be months before I get this stupid thing back going again. Luckily, I was able to find some backup files. <laughs> and so I could recompile it, re-edit it, do all this stuff. But I was starting to wonder if the powers that be were giving me a reason for not wanting this episode to go out. I guess we'll find out. So I meant to get this out last week and then have four solid Halloween episodes in October. That's not going to happen, those four solid episodes, except for the fact that this story is creepy enough that I believe it definitely qualifies as a Halloween story. And what's better, it opens you up to a whole world of wonderful short stories that you can buy. These stories are collected in a book called The Binscombe Tales, B-I-N-S-C-O-M-B-E, by John Whitbourne. And it's funny because they're tall tales told in a tavern in the sense that the stories almost all begin in a tavern. In this particular series, they usually end up outside of the tavern, which is a funny little twist on it. But this town, Binscombe, the author says, is a village in the southeast of England, and its community has roots that are so deep in history 
that they go way back, way back. And the people who live in the town have unusual connections with all these different periods of history. And some of it's historical fun. Some of it is just, oh man, some of the best weird story stuff you've ever read. There's a story in here about a bus stop that is terrifying. And I gave a copy of these to our priest for Christmas. And he came to me later and said, that story about the bus stop was really creepy. And I went, yes, I know. So I highly recommend getting this book for Halloween if you're interested in doing that kind of reading, which you know is the sort of thing that I love to do. They also have humorous stories. And you'll see some of those elements in the sample I'm going to share today. But there are some that are much funnier or lighter overall. For instance, there's a story about a desk (laughs) that I know these are so funny, the bus stop, the desk, but there's a story about a desk that I will have to reread it. But I just remember chuckling at the idea that this desk was causing these problems. So there are all kinds of stories here. This author has a fantastic imagination. He has officially stopped writing these Binskum tales. And the afterward talks about some of the ideas that he had that he just never went ahead and developed into short stories. And I'm sorry that he didn't because they all sound wonderful. He's got quite an imagination. He now writes novels. I haven't read any of those, although I plan to sometime. And I realize this description, this very brief overview I'm doing is not adequate at all because I don't know how the author combines this English village feel with some of the really weird stories that he does. And they aren't grotesque, at least I don't remember anything that's, you know, graphic or anything. They're just wonderful in that H.P. Lovecraft hinted at, mentioned, but not, you know, really described in a lot of ways when the stories get really weird. In order to try to give you an idea of what they're like, I'm going to read the very first story because we are shown all these stories through the eyes of Mr. Oakley, who has just moved to the village when the first story takes place. He meets an older gentleman, Mr. Disvan, who is the local storyteller who kind of guides him on his tour through all these tales that we see. As this first story mentions... And as it gets developed in the other stories, it is important that Mr. Oakley has roots in the village also. His family left a few generations ago, but when he comes back, he is able to kind of slide into their way of thinking, although he resists it because he's been out of the village long enough. And that's part of the fun of these stories, too, is watching this very rational, logical person keep jerking back from the edge of just falling in and believing all these things he's being told and have to have it proved time and again, which is kind of how a lot of us are, I think. You know, we may have an odd experience, but rather than believe it, we're going to test it. We're going to think about it. We're going to dismiss it, possibly, because we know this logically can't have happened. I'm not talking about a bus stop or a desk. (laughs) And quite often there are very logical explanations because we do live in the real world and not in Binscombe. And after reading this story, I'm just a touch grateful we don't live in Binscombe. Let me quit babbling now and give you your sample. Let's dive in and I'll meet you on the other side. 
Binscombe Tales by John Whitbourne. This book is under copyright. This story is being read as part of the Fair Use Act as a sample of Mr. Whitbourne's writing. Another Place Tired of unpacking and arranging furniture, I decided to take a brief preliminary look around my new village. Traipsing at random along the quiet streets, I came at length to the recreation ground, and seeing a cricket match in progress, decided to watch for a short while. It was also perhaps in my mind that I might pass a social word or two concerning the weather or progress of play with my fellow villagers. For the foreseeable future, this place was going to be my home, and it was desirable that I should get to know some people so as to start the long process of becoming accepted. The wreck, as I was told the locals termed it, had very distinct physical boundaries. On one side, its expanse was stopped dead by the edge of a lake, and opposite what passed for a major road in these parts, together with a fence and a screen of tall fir trees, separated the grass from the outer frontier of the housing estates. The rest of the wreck's containing box comprised on one side the new and brutal high wall of a secondary modern school, and on the other an ancient and even higher wall, protecting some of the village's original houses from curiosity and cricket balls. In between the trees on the roadside were interspersed some wooden benches on which spectators were sitting, and it was to these that I crossed over. Not all of the seats were occupied, and should I have so wished, I could have sat alone. However, for the reasons given above, I chose to join an elderly man on a bench which gave a clear view of the pavilion, pitch, and scoreboard. Beside the seat were sprawled a number of young lads, their BMX and chopper bikes beside them, who were paying only occasional attention to the game in progress. No one looked up at my arrival or paid any heed to me at all, and though I put on my most amiable and approachable expression in the hope that a conversation might ensue, the local silence was maintained. Eventually, my attention was caught up in the cricket, passably good for village standard, I thought, and an hour passed quickly and imperceptibly by. The church clock striking seven broke my reverie and caused me to recall the state of unfettered anarchy my house was in. Tomorrow was a working day, and so great a deal of progress remained to be made that very evening. Meeting the locals must therefore await another occasion. Then, just as I got up to go, the old man with whom I'd shared the bench spoke, although he did not turn his head or take his eyes from the match. "'Are you a newcomer?' he asked. I wondered for a second if it was indeed me he was addressing— for he'd already had ample opportunity to put the question before. However, seeing that the children were the only other people in immediate earshot, I assumed I must be the one spoken to, and replied accordingly, Yes, I am. He looked around in a most friendly manner. Nice to meet you, and welcome to Binscombe. I'm Mr. Disvan. How do you do, Mr. Disvan? My name's Oakley. He pondered this for a longer time than the mere revelation of my name strictly justified, but appeared to come to no conclusion about it for the time being. Do you like cricket, Mr. Oakley? In moderation. He smiled. My feelings entirely. What is your sport, then? Well, I don't really have one as such. I quite like backgammon and darts. 
Oh, well, they're good enough games, especially darts. You'll not lack for companions around here, I'm thinking. No? Some of the people hereabouts only live for darts, and everything else is an intrusion. Go into the Duke of Argyle on a Friday night, and you'll see what I mean. I couldn't think of a sensible-sounding answer to this, and so silence returned. It stretched out into a full minute or so, and I was once more on the point of taking my leave when the old man spoke again, this time with a note of great seriousness in his voice. "'Where exactly is it you've moved to, Mr. Oakley?' "'Binscombe Crescent.' Mr. Disvin continued looking straight ahead, but the young cyclists, hitherto oblivious to our presence and conversation, stopped their chat and, as one, stared at me. Almost involuntarily, I returned their stares. They, in turn, looked to Mr. Disvin as if for guidance, and then, finding none there, returned instantly to juvenile banter. I found it hard to accept that this scene had actually occurred. Could they have misheard my reply and imagined it to be something outrageous? In any event, the old man's voice, when he spoke again, had not changed its tone. Yes, I heard there'd been a change down at Binscombe Crescent. What number is it you've bought, may I ask? I told him the house. I know it well, built middle fifties. Mr. and Mrs. Trevison lived there, and then, in his turn, their son Daniel. He works up north now. Slough, actually. Yes, that's right. Slough, or some such place. Presumably it was Daniel that sold it to you. Yes. Very nice house. Thank you. Well, Mr. Oakley, I mustn't keep you any longer. It's been a pleasure meeting you, and I hope you'll settle in happily very soon. No doubt we shall bump into each other again before long. Yes, no doubt. And so saying, I went back to my wearisome work. Months elapsed before I saw Mr. Disvin again, a fact that I thought distinctly odd considering the size of the village. Several times I inquired after him, and publican and shopkeeper alike would say something along the lines of, Oh, yes, he's about all right. I saw him only yesterday. Perhaps you'll see him tomorrow. Curiously enough, however, his paths never seemed to cross my line of vision, even though all my evenings and weekends were spent in Binscombe. Accordingly, he had almost faded from my memory when, entering the Duke of Argyle one night, I was surprised to see him sitting peaceably in the corner by the chimney-stack and the charity-bound tower of tenpence pieces. On the small round table before him was a vast bound book and a glass of something dark. My path to the bar took me past that particular corner, and so I greeted him as I went by. "'Evening, Mr. Disman. How are you? Haven't seen you for a long while. Nor I you. Pleased to meet you again.' Being English, neither of us presumed to transform our cordial greeting into conversation on the basis of so casual an acquaintance. Therefore, I carried on up to the bar and spoke similar hellos to the familiar faces there. In the interval since my arrival, I'd managed to make several friends by means of assiduous and persistent socializing, but it so happened that none of them were present that night, and so I drank alone. 
It should not be thought that the people of Binscombe were unapproachable or hostile to strangers, for they were not. Nearly every person I'd come into contact with in the course of my short stay had been friendly, or, at worst, benevolently neutral in their attitude toward me. But even so, although there must have been two dozen villagers with whom I was on good-morning terms, even with these there seemed to be a point of familiarity beyond which only the elapse of time could grant me pass. I attached little importance to it. Their insularity was not an intended rebuff to me, but merely something natural, even in so urbanized a place as Binscombe. Thus I sat at the bar with half a dozen other men, in contemplative quiet whilst consuming a few pints and considering the decorative tasks still to be done in my house. It was this silence that caused my eye to wander about the interior of the Argyle, seeking diversion and noting, for the first time really, its plain and traditional furnishings. There wasn't much to catch or grab a gaze— Photographs of long-deceased local football teams, obscure trophies and prints of the last king but two, that sort of thing. All else was functional, and solely intended to facilitate social drinking, and therefore it took little time for my attention to return, uninspired, to its starting point. It was then that I noticed the full but apparently ownerless glass on the bar beside me, there was nothing unusual about this in itself, for customers often popped out to make a phone call or see a friend in the saloon. However, when a full fifteen minutes elapsed without anyone returning to claim the drink, I felt moved, for conversation's sake if nothing else, to mention it to the landlord. "'Didn't someone like your beer?' I asked, nodding toward the lonely pint of bitter. Strangely, for a normally talkative and cheerful sort of host— the landlord wasn't drawn by my question. He didn't look up from his glass-washing and said in a manner that was almost curt, Maybe not. No one around the bar, though in easy hearing distance, betrayed so much as a sign of having heard my quip. No one even looked toward me or the glass in question. If common sense hadn't dictated otherwise, I could well have believed I'd said something wrong. It was this half-felt sense of solecism that caused me to think I should retreat from the bar and join Mr. Disvan for a few words before journeying home. An unmistakable air of unease had entered my social evening, but since I felt that its creation was none of my doing, I didn't consider it proper to leave straight away. Fortunately, Mr. Disvan seemed disposed to entertain company and pulled up a chair for me when he saw I was approaching. "'Can I ask what it is you're reading?' I said. By way of reply, he lifted the large hardback book up and presented its spinewards towards me so I could read the title, The Holy Koran. This was a hard thing to make an adequate response to. "'I see. Mm, I've never read it myself.' "'No,' he replied. "'No,' I answered weakly, whilst hoping that a tonic of conversation would suddenly and miraculously occur to me. In the event, the old man came to my rescue and provided one. "'And what do you think of our area now you've settled in, Mr. Oakley?' "'I like it very much.' "'Good.' "'And in a sense it was a home area to me already.' "'In what way?' 
My family lived in this village for centuries, so I've been told, before moving away in my grandfather's time. That's right. I thought your name was familiar when I spoke to you at the cricket match. There's been Oakleys here since records were kept, and for goodness knows how long in the time before. The time before records, I mean, he added hastily. Are you a local historian, Mr. Disvan? Of a sort, Mr. Oakley, in some specific fields. For instance, I know of your great-grandfather on the paternal side, Malachi Oakley, a carpenter. Then before him was his father, Jacob Evelyn Oakley, publican and churchwarden, an unusual mix in those days. If you were to press me, I could probably recite you a dozen successive generations of Oakleys, all by name and occupation. He looked keenly at me over the edge of his raised glass. And now you're back. I was still winding in this hitherto unknown genealogical information, but felt obliged to agree with his last words, even though, at that point, I'd no intention of remaining for another twelve generations. Yes, I suppose I am, I said. Look, what you say is fascinating, Mr. Disvan, but how on earth did you acquire such detailed information? It's not so difficult. Everyone knows everything about everybody here, and in Binskum, memories are powerful strong. The evidence of my local ties and Disvan's close familiarity with them emboldened me enough to ask him the question which had inexplicably frozen the atmosphere in the bar. Tell me, Mr. Disvan, this in a lowered voice, why has that pint of beer been left standing on the bar? Why doesn't the landlord clear it away if it's been abandoned? It's not abandoned. It's Mr. Boulding's drink. It won't be tipped away until closing time. Won't Mr. Boulding drink it? Mr. Disvan smiled warmly. Hmm, I very much doubt it. Not where he is. I don't understand. Where is Mr. Boulding, then? He's in the other Binscombe. I beg your pardon? The other Binscombe. Where's that? The old man smiled again. That's a very good question. All I can say with any degree of sureness is that on the anniversary of Mr. Boulding going there... We place a commemorative drink where he always used to stand at the bar. Commemorative? Is he dead? Oh, I shouldn't think so. Hmm, it was only ten years ago he went, and he was in his middle forties then. I must have appeared a picture of puzzlement. I'm sorry, but I still don't understand, I said. Mr. Disvan disregarded that and changed the tack of the conversation without warning. Did your grandfather ever say much to you about Binscombe, Mr. Oakley? He died when I was very small. Ah, I see. But you haven't explained about Mr. Boulding. No, I haven't. Well, aren't you going to? If you wish. Yes, please. Disvan looked at the bar and then at me. The explanation isn't very instructive or edifying. 
Even so. Very well, then, I will tell you. Only not now, for I have to go, and it's a long story. Is there something wrong about it? I said hurriedly, for Disvan was drinking up and preparing to put his coat on. Wrong? No, not wrong as such, but as I've said, it's a long story. The next time we meet up, I'll recount it to you. Okay. And with that, Disvan tucked the Koran under his arm and left. I stayed a little longer to ponder the lessons of the day and the portents for the morrow whilst enjoying another drink. Nevertheless, no matter how hard I thought of work and love and plans, I found my gaze turning time and time again to the solitary glass and the empty space at the bar. After that evening, I looked out for Mr. Disvan with some considerable animation, for I keenly wished to hear the story with which I'd been tantalized. Therefore, after a week of his non-appearance at the Argyle, or anywhere else for that matter, I turned again to questioning tradesmen and other local in-the-know people as to his whereabouts. However, just as before, I was told that he was around as normal and had been seen, spoken to even, only yesterday. But today? No, they didn't know. It was a very annoying process. But my curiosity was such that I only desisted from inquiries when I realized that I was making myself appear an obsessive in front of the people with whom I had to live. Paradoxically enough, therefore, the day after I resolved to put the matter out of my mind, I managed to run the elusive Mr. Disvan to the ground again. I was going about my customary evening stroll, which would presumably end in the Argyle, when I thought I recognized the old man's distinctive Panama hat atop a figure sitting in the recreation ground. Without needing to consider the matter, I hurried over to the spot and saw that it was indeed the person I'd been looking for. He was resting on a bench that stood in a corner which, lacking proper nets, the local cricket team employed as a practice area. He appeared to be watching the half-dozen men who were currently using it for this purpose. I came up and sat beside him, and although he did not turn around, he seemed to know who had arrived. "'Hello again, Mr. Oakley.' Hello. You have the air of being on a mission. Do I? Indeed, very much a man with a purpose. Well, now you come to mention it, I was rather hoping you'd very belatedly finish telling the story about Mr. Boulding's drink. Oh, that old tale. That's your local roots coming through, you know. Curiosity about such trifles. His tone was jocular rather than admonitory. I can't answer as to that, but I'd certainly like to have that mystery cleared up. Disman turned to observe me, his face and voice suddenly very serious. Oh, no, that I can't do. I doubt anybody could, but I can tell you the story if you really want. He looked round at two young men who'd come and sat down on the grass not far off in order to adjust pads and rebind a bat handle. This is not for your ears, he said to them, and to my surprise they instantly got up and moved out of earshot without so much as a word of protest. Thereafter we were left to ourselves. Is it that bad? I asked. 
No, not bad or wrong, as I said to you before, but, he added wistfully, it's something you should be selective about who you tell. These pseudo-warnings, such as preceded horror films or shocking newsreels on the television, only ever served to whet my appetite for what was to come, and I was accordingly now all agog. Where did Mr. Bolding live before he went away? I asked. Binscombe Crescent. Just as I suspected. What number? That needn't concern you. Rest assured it wasn't where you now live. If he had lived in my house, why should that concern me? Because of the thought you might follow him. To the other Binscombe? Perhaps or even to somewhere else. So what is the full story, Mr. Disvan? Like I've said, I don't think anyone, with the possible exception of Bolding himself, knows what you call the full story. I only know the beginning. Which is... Which is... That one day, Bolding vanished for a full 48 hours. Now, he was a locksmith and clock repairer by trade, and he had a little shop in the main street. It's a toy shop now, doubtless you'll have seen it. Anyway, what with the shop not opening and people wanting keys cut and the like, it was soon noticed that he wasn't about. Mrs. Bolding, she was seen out shopping and so on, but she never mentioned anything, so folks didn't inquire. It was all very strange, though, because every night of his life, from the day he left school at fourteen, he always popped into the Argyle of an evening. The licensing laws were easier in those days, and the policeman was a local boy. Suddenly, two nights running, he didn't show up, and people began to think he'd run away, or Mrs. Bolding had done him in, for there was no love lost between the two, or something like that. And, and it got to the point where we considered getting Stan the constable to look into it, even though we were reluctant to interfere. Then, sure enough, Bolding turned up at the Argyle the very next evening, and the mystery was solved. Or so we thought then. How do you mean? Well, he was pale and sickly-looking and unshaven. It seemed obvious he'd been unwell. And hadn't he been? No, he'd been fit as a fiddle, so he told us. The point was, you see, that Mr. Bolding was one of the old sort, a very upright, truthful sort of man. He was an elder of the Methodist lot, and whatever you may think of them, it still does count for something. If anyone asked him a question, he'd always give the straight, honest truth without deception. That was the way he was. He didn't think he had any choice in the matter, you understand. It was how he'd built up a nice little business. People took their custom to him because they knew they could trust him. What did he say then? Well, old man Yarm went up to him and says, Oh, Jack, where have you been? Sick? You look like death warmed up. And blow me if he didn't. No, he says. I've not been ill. I've been away. Away where? we asked. And he answered, I'm not sure. 
As you might imagine, we didn't quite know what to make of that, for he wasn't what you would call a heavy drinking man. Accordingly, we asked what he was on about, but he wouldn't give an explanation. He had his usual couple of drinks without another word and then went home, still looking like a ghost. Did he ever say where he'd been? At that point, he wasn't able to, for he wasn't sure himself. As I've said, Jack Bolding was a painfully honest man, if nothing else, and if he said that he didn't know where he'd been, then he really didn't. But he found out later, did he? Well, let's just say he had his suspicions confirmed and his remaining hopes torn away. And by that time, he was a very troubled as well as a very honest man. Why? Because that was only the first time he disappeared. It happened again only a month and a bit later, and then once again a couple of weeks after that. His shop was closed up for days on each occasion, and his absence was very noticeable, he being such a regular chap in his habits. Each time he'd come back looking worse than ever, and he'd refused to talk about it to anyone. In fact, he got quite short with people who inquired after him, even though he was normally a civil type. What happened then? Well, things were plainly going badly with him. His skin was pallid and he'd lost so much weight that his clothes hung on him like sheets. Mrs. Bolding wasn't the sort of person he could take his problems to, so the lad said to me, Mr. Disvin, you have a word with your poor old Jack. So I did. What did he say? Not much at first. I went up to him at a cricket match. Versus Brightstone, as I recall. And I said, come on, Jack, out with it. What's haunting you these days? Well, he turned around and replied, Why don't you all mind your own blank business? Which wasn't like him at all. Anyway, he must have thought about it and realized that sort of language wasn't called for and how we all meant well, for he came back to me soon after and apologized. Not that I minded, of course, for I'd known Bolding a long time, and I could see from his weary eyes that he was bearing a mighty burden. So he did confide in you. Not on that occasion, but a week after. When he'd vanished once more and then reappeared three days later, I approached him again and found he was now keen to talk. Disvan, he said. I've got to speak to someone or I think I'm going to lose my wits. Talk away as much as you like, I said, and took him to my house for a cup of tea. Did he manage to explain what was happening? He tried. I've been away, he says. I don't know why, I don't know how, and I don't know where to. This naturally puzzled me, although I had to accept his statement, and when I asked him what he meant, he gave the same answer. For I can't give any better, were his words. I kept on probing, though, for I felt sorry for him, and bit by bit he told the story. Which was? Which was that one day, just like any other day, he shut up his shop and went home for his midday meal. He ate it, said goodbye to his wife, and went out of his front door into another place. Did he explain that? Oh, yes, in great detail. 
What sort of other place was it he'd walked into then? He said he was still in Binscombe, yet at the same time he wasn't, because it was no Binscombe he'd ever seen. I don't understand. Neither did he, poor fellow. Neither does anyone. But there it still is. Like I keep on saying, Bolding was an honest man, and if he said he'd stumbled into another world, then you're safe in accepting that he did. What was it like? Empty. It was the Binscombe he'd known all his life, but deserted and ruined. He mentioned that quite specifically. All the houses and shops had been wrecked or fallen down of their own accord. Apparently, the recreation ground in the other Binscombe was chest-high in grass, and there were bushes and weeds in the roadways. What did he do? Just what you'd expect. He stepped back inside sharpish. And? And for an instant, he said. He could still hear the sounds of his wife clearing up in the kitchen. But then that faded and died, and he found himself in a ruined house. It was his house, right enough, but the roof was half gone and there was ivy and moss on the inside walls. And he panicked? No, Bolding wasn't like that. Not a man of strong passions at all. Apparently, he checked what was left of the place just to see if Mrs. Bolding was there, but she wasn't. He said that all through the house he saw things that were his, all scattered about and broken, so there couldn't be any doubt left as to whose dwelling he was in. And there was no one around at all? No, no one. He went to the neighbors' houses and knocked on their doors, save one that no longer had a door, and got no answer. Judging by appearances, he said that it didn't look as if there'd been anyone living in them for many a year. So, anyway, off he went to his shop, a natural enough reaction for a small trader. And all along the way, there was the same story. Ruin and desolation, jungle and neglect. He couldn't believe his eyes, poor man. He thought it must be some horrible dream he was trapped in. But I presume it wasn't. I don't see how it could have been. A man can't disappear into a dream for days on end, can he? I suppose not. No. So there he is in Binscombe High Street, surveying the clumps of grass sprouting up through the middle of the road. Half the buildings tumbled down, and not so much as a sign of a human being anywhere. Soon enough, he went to look at his shop and found that there was a young sapling growing out of the front window. Well, you can imagine how he felt on seeing that. His sign was still over the front door, and some stock remained on display, but otherwise the place was in a shambles. That little shop was his life, really, and seeing it in such a state affected him more than anything else he'd seen so far, or so he told me. It was then you could be uncharitable enough to say that he panicked, in so far as Jack knew how to. What did he do? He went straight back home, trying to ignore the unearthly hush, found a dry spot, and went to sleep for twelve hours solid. A nervous reaction, I suppose. And when he woke, he opened his eyes, cautiously hoping it had all been a dream after all. But he soon saw that wasn't so. The roof was still full of holes, and he could see the stars as he lay there. When he looked out of the front door again, there was the village, albeit in darkness, 
but not a single light visible from horizon to horizon. The whole countryside was as black as pitch. Anyway, to keep himself occupied, he had a scout around the house. <laughs> the roof let in a lot of moonlight, and in his travels he found a calendar, one of those tear-off day-by-day types, which said, March twenty-third, 1965. So at least five years must have elapsed between anyone paying attention to it and Bolding's arrival. He said that some sort of time gap seemed to tie in with the decay he'd seen all about. Next, he looked for a newspaper or such like to see if any further light could be shed on the mystery. But time and wind and rain must have dealt with them all, for he never did find one even later on when he ventured further afield. So he went exploring, did he? What else could he do? Hour after hour passed, and he got fed up sifting through the junk in his house. So when the sun came up, he went for a walk. Where? All over. He cut a path across the recreation ground to the edge of the lake. Full of fish, he said, now that there was no one to catch them. And then he worked his way around the edge to the old manor house. By the looks of it, someone had shot that up and then burnt it. And seeing that made him feel wary and suspicious. In due course, he walked all the way to Goldenford and took a shotgun and ammunition from the storeroom at Jeffrey Brothers. With that by him, he felt a bit safer. All the same, it must have been a disquieting journey. He said that even the main roads were overgrown and that the town bridge was fallen down, so he had to chance the old ford to get into the high street. Standing at the top of the town, he could see the whole place was in just as bad a state as Binscombe. Weeds growing up between the sets, shop windows caved in, roofs collapsed. Just total ruin, in fact. And over everything was that great silence. And no people there, either. No people, no cats, no dogs. Apart from the birds flying overhead and a few cows on a hill in the distance, there was nothing moving at all. Did he ever find out where everyone had gone? Ah, now you're jumping ahead of the story. Sorry. Anyway, back he walks to Binscombe, jumping at shadows and clutching his gun. But once again, he sees not a soul. By now, he was really upset, and once he was home, he barricaded himself in and curled up to sleep in the same corner as before. And? And that's where his wife found him the next morning. What the devil are you doing sleeping on the hallway floor in all your clothes? She said. And where did you get that gun? He was back. Precisely. Well, up he gets and dashes outside. When he saw that there were cars and passers by and that the roads and houses were well kept up and lived in, he could have wept for joy. So he told me. He turned round to look at his own house and saw the roof was whole and the chimney in an upright position once more, and only then, I think, was he fully convinced that he'd returned to the world he knew. Following on from that, he realized what a state he was in and what a picture he looked standing gopping in the front garden with a shotgun in his hands. People were beginning to stare, so he quickly nipped back inside. What did he tell his wife? Nothing, I don't think. As I've said, whatever love they might once have had was long since dead and buried, and they didn't even talk anymore. 
Apparently, she assumed he'd been off with a fancy woman whilst he was away, not that she cared over much, and it was easier for him not to correct her. Anyway, he got her to make him a meal, and directly after he came to the Argyle for something to steady his nerves, which was when we all saw him as I described to you before. What happened then? Well, at first, he could hardly bring himself to accept what had occurred as reality. But there was the small matter of the shotgun, which he now had and hadn't owned before. He couldn't discount that as imagination. Understandably, he put the whole business out of his mind and tried to get on with life as best he could. Not being an unduly reflective sort of man helped him with that, and he said that eventually he felt safe and normal again when... He went back. That's right. He was alone in his shop in the middle of the morning and bent down to get something out of a box below the counter. When he straightened up again and looked out the window, everything had changed. The bank and the chemist's shop opposite were all tumbled down. The pedestrians and shoppers had vanished and there was just that almighty quiet left. His shop looked like a whirlwind had been through it and the sapling was back growing out of the floor and through the broken shop front. How did he react? He went straight to the Argyle, broke in, and drank a bottle of brandy he found there. After he'd slept that off, he cleaned the bar billiards table up and played game after game into the night. Anything to keep his mind off his location, I suppose. Eventually, he went back to the shop the next morning, presumably, and fell asleep again through sheer nervous exhaustion. When he woke up, he found he was back in our binscombe. Apparently, his wife had come along the previous day, found him missing, and locked the place up herself. What did he do this time? All sorts of things, since he had to take it seriously now. He went to see his priest or pastor, or whatever it is the Methodists call their top people, but the man turned out to be of a modernistic frame of mind. He asked whether he had problems with his sex life and referred him to a psychiatrist friend. Naturally, Bolding wouldn't hold with that sort of business, so he went and tried to get the local C of E man to exercise him. But they don't believe in such things anymore, or so the vicar said. Eventually, in his desperation, he ended up by going to see one of the gypsy well, Didicoy, really, wise women at Epsom. But she refused to take his money. Why? He was being hunted, she said. Another place had claimed him and was drawing closer all the time, and there was nothing he could do to change or even delay the matter. She told him to accept gracefully the place that fate had prepared for him, and, if he could, to be thankful lest his opposition should bring further misfortune. And did he accept it? Was he thankful? Would you? Would you be? Women like her perhaps know things that we don't, unless they're all just clever fakes, as many say, and maybe they see things differently as a result. However that may be, Jack Bolding was stuck as he was, and resignation to fate and all that stuff wasn't really his way. So, no, he didn't accept or give thanks. In the event, though, he might just as well have done, because whether he accepted it or not, there was precious little he could do about it other than to try and stay in company at all times. But that didn't work? 
Possibly it did. Leastways, he never crossed over when he was with a crowd of people or when someone was looking at him. Even so, his travels continued. Just as before. Exactly as before, because try as you might, you can't spend every minute of the day in company. Well, not and live a normal, bearable life at the same time. So, to give you some examples, once he woke up and found himself in the other binscombe. Another time he came out of the garden privy and discovered he'd crossed over. If he was gardening or taking a stroll, he couldn't be sure that his very next step wouldn't be into the other place. By this stage he'd gone over maybe a dozen times for around one to three days apiece. His wife was quite convinced he was seeing another woman. And how did he deal with that? He said, I only wish I were, or a man, or boy, or donkey. And she took that funny, as you might expect. Mind you, Bolding had been dining on nothing but tongue, pie, and cold shoulder from her since she found the shop unattended, so it didn't make much of a difference to the situation between them. What did he do during these trips? Explore, or drink, or weep, or despair, according to his mood. On one occasion, he said that he went as far as London on a bicycle he'd found. Well, that's over thirty miles or more. How was London? The same as everywhere else. Didn't he find anyone? No, he did say that one night he saw a light in the far distance, but it only lasted a few seconds, and he said it might have been just wishful thinking on his part. What else did he say? That Waterloo Bridge had been dynamited by the looks of what remained, and Big Ben was also down. There was no sign of life whatsoever in the city. It was as if everyone had upped and gone one day, and there'd not been a single visitor since until he arrived. Anyway, as I recall, he said that he went and wandered round the British Museum for a while for want of anything better to do. Then he dined on some tinned food from the Savoy and ended up sleeping under Nelson's protection in Trafalgar Square. The next thing he knew was being woken up by a policeman and arrested for vagrancy, in our world, needless to say. So how did it all end? Well... Strangely enough, it was possible that the gypsy woman was at least partially right. Perhaps the other Binscombe was coming ever closer to Mr. Bolding, because each occasion he went there he was staying longer and longer. As you can imagine, his health and nerves were suffering, not to mention his business. That was shut up half the time, since he was either over in the other place or too worried about going there to devote his mind to work. His trade was drifting away, as you might expect. His wife wasn't talking to him and was fit to leave him any minute because of the ideas she'd got in her head, which he wasn't able to correct, and, generally speaking, he felt his role, his reason for being in this world, if you like, was dwindling away. So, in the end, he had to give some attention to the life he was leading, willing or no, in the other Binscombe. After all, he was spending a lot of time over there by this stage. Accordingly, he mended the roof of his house and dug the garden over so he could plant vegetables. Otherwise, he was likely to starve, for there wasn't much food to be found. 
Apparently, he went on foraging expeditions, sometimes as far as Croydon or Winchester, on his bike, and he'd be away from the house, the one in the other place, that is, for days on end. London he henceforth avoided, since he said it gave him the creeps to see that, of all places, overgrown and silent as it was. In time, he found most of the tools and such like that he needed to survive, and he also ransacked a few shops to refurnish his house in finer style than it had ever been in our world. He said he even managed to find an old wind-up gramophone to give him a bit of company. It sounds almost cozy. Well, I wouldn't say that exactly. His little inhabited cultivated spot was set in a great quiet jungle, so to speak. And I don't think his life can have been easy. I mean, how can you feel at home in that situation? Anyhow, during the times he was in our world, he took to filling his pockets with seeds and shotgun cartridges and such like useful things. So when he crossed over again, he'd have something to add to his stores. The point was, you see, that he was growing less and less sure that he was ever coming back here to stay. Apart from you and he, did anyone else know what was happening? A few. Some of the wiser and more trusted types. His friends from the Argyle. People he'd grown up with. Folks whose family had been here since early times. When things got really serious, he had to take them into his confidence. But not his wife. No, that's merely the way things were. I don't say it was right. Okay, how did these people take it? Did they believe him? But of course, Jack Boulding never lied, like I've already told you. As for your first question, people took the news very well. They rallied round and gave him useful portable things he could carry round with him, ready for the next trip to the other place. That sounds a bit cold-blooded. What about sympathy? Sympathy is cheap, but help is help, and it lasts longer. Maybe, maybe, but even so, it was rather an incredible story to accept just like that. Well, yes and no, because it wasn't the first time we'd heard of the other place. No? No, there have been stories about it from time to time. Your grandfather would have told you about them if he'd lived long enough. Most of the old families around here know about the other place. Some of them have had people visit it, for there's a variety of means of entry. The alongside time was the old name for it. I've heard it said that some people have lived out their lives there as either volunteers or conscripts like Bolding, though whether that's true or not, I couldn't swear. And that's where he is now? I presume so. Who can say? Did he just disappear, never to return? No, I think he must have had a premonition that the next time he crossed over, he wasn't coming back because one particular night he came into the Argyle to say his farewells. He said that he'd already kissed his wife goodbye. Not that she understood, of course. What did he say? Not much. He stood us all a drink or two, for he didn't need money where he was going, and then he asked us to remember him from time to time, seeing as how our paths might be crossing, although we'd not know it. What did he mean? Well, think of it. 
We could be walking down a street here. And in the other Binskum, Jack might be strolling alongside us in the selfsame street at exactly the same time. It's possible we could even be occupying the same bit of space. So anyway, we wished him all the best and presented him with one of those Swiss army knives. Very useful things, them, which we'd clubbed together to buy, anticipating such an event. We put a nice inscription to him on it, and it had just about every tool conceivable, so I thought we'd chosen well. And then? Well, that seemed to choke him up a bit, so we just said cheerio and left for home. Never to be seen again. That's right. Mind you, we leave a drink on his place at the bar in the Argyle every anniversary of that evening, so as to remind us of him and just in case he comes back. Do you think he ever will? No, I don't suppose so. He's where he's meant to be. Conversation faltered as I harvested the weirdness in. It was an eerie thought. Bolding, working away in his garden in Binscombe Crescent all alone and surrounded by ruins and nature run wild, while back here in our Binscombe Crescent, a family lived out their normal life in the same spot. Then Disvan spoke again, raising suspicions that he'd been trespassing in my mind. Yes, curious concept, isn't it? He said. I often wonder if they ever catch a glimpse of his shadow or hear just a faint whisper of his gramophone playing. Perhaps he can sometimes sense some of their activities. Leastways, I hope that's so, because it might be a comfort to him to know that life in his old home goes on. However, nothing of the kind has ever been reported to me. Yes, I see. I suppose it depends on how close the two Binscombs are to each other. Or maybe they even drift apart and then come together again in a cycle. No one knows, Mr. Oakley, although a lot of thought's been given to it, not least by those who go there. Mr. Disvan looked up and round and seemed lost in meditation for a considerable while. What I had just heard equally occupied my mind as I tried with limited success to reconcile its otherworldliness with the prosaic normality I saw all about me in the recreation ground. At length, he broke the silence. Of course, to those who are aware of it, such knowledge breeds a kind of uncertainty. That's how I knew right away before you said anything that you had a close connection with here. It's passed on in the blood, and what's bred in the bone comes out in the meat. It shows in your manner, even though you know nothing about it. What do you mean, uncertainty? Well, consider, Mr. Oakley, there you are on a misty street or turning a corner during a solitary walk or waking in a darkened room or even leaving your front door. And the question always arises, which Binscombe am I in? All right, was that creepy enough for everyone? Ah, uh, yes, I love it. It's kind of a combination of the best of the weird story genre and also that apocalyptic idea of how do you live if no one's left. 
but you're left wondering with all these other little details, what happened to everyone? What was that little flash of light at the top of that hill he just saw for a few seconds? Oh, it was wonderfully, tantalizingly vague while being so concrete in a lot of details, like that sapling growing through the window. You just could see it. I just love the way these stories are told, and they're so varied and such wonderful stories. I really hope you go out and find them to read for yourself. We will have a straight-up Halloween story next time. So we've got three of those to look forward to. Scott Danielson from A Good Story is Hard to Find, which we do together, is going to read two of them for us. Ha ha ha. And I'll be reading another one. And speaking of Scott Danielson and A Good Story is Hard to Find, I mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. We'll be discussing Salem's Lot by Stephen King this week. You want to talk about Halloween, sheer evil. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's an American Dracula story, basically. And there are no twinkling vampires here, as I think I've mentioned also. (laughs) It is terrifying, and it is wonderful. So if you haven't read it, definitely read it. If you have, you may be interested in our conversation. And I just feel lucky to have this episode going out. So I think that's all we're going to talk about right now. If you want to email me, contact me, leave a comment... You can find me at hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com, which is the blog for the podcast. You can comment at iTunes, and I thank you if you have commented lately. I love those comments. My email is julie, J-U-L-I-E, at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. Definitely shoot me an email. I got one last week from a longtime listener. I actually connected with her on Goodreads, and she listens to A Good Story is Hard to Find. I think she also listens to Forgotten Classics. But I can't tell you what a great thing it was to get some feedback. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, you know, a self-pitying kind of way. It was just a wonderful, wonderful surprise dropped in my lap in the middle of the day. Because as I've told you many times before and will doubtless go on telling you again. I appreciate everyone coming to listen. You don't have to comment for me to appreciate it. I wouldn't be reading any of these stories out loud. I wouldn't have the fun of choosing the stories. And I really do appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.